Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Heart-to-Heart -Heart Clinical Intensive, Considerations for Rhythm Control Post-Cabana, is provided in partnership with Medtelligence and supported by an independent educational grant from Santa Fe, U.S. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Sunit Mittal. All right, so this is a, a, a case of a 58-year-old man. He's hypertensive and has persistent atrial fibrillation and some fatigue. <laughs> He's had well-controlled hypertension. <laughs> atrial fibrillation has been present for a year, and now he comes in and says fatigue. His wife says he like snores like a foghorn on steroids. She can't even be in the same room with him. He, he clearly has markers of sleep apnea. He's drowsy and takes naps during the day. He used to uh, golf a lot and uh, walked with uh, his uh, clubs along the course. Now he only uses the cart due to fatigue. He can't make it around that well. He's on ramipril, metoprolol, hydrochlorothiazide, well-controlled hypertension. He's, his BMI is pretty average nowadays, blood pressure is controlled. Heart rate is 90 and irregular, has uh, otherwise reasonably normal physical examination. ECG shows atrial fibrillation with a ventricular response around 95 and some nonspecific ST and T way abnormalities. He has a, a lab panel as a BMP and a thyroid panel as normal. And a liver function test slightly elevated, maybe a little bit of alcohol in the mix. His echocardiogram, not the best windows with his uh, obesity, but his uh, ejection fraction looks pretty good, a little bit of diastolic dysfunction. A little bit more testing, he has uh, CPAP, really bad, and uh, he, uh, uh, he has a, a sleep apnea and he's on uh, recommended for CPAP. Now, uh, this guy has, uh, I don't know how many choices you want as to why he's fatigued. A lot of our patients come in like this. And uh, we have uh, some people who have a zillion different things wrong with them, but they're pinning the tail on the donkey that it's the atrial fibrillation. If only I weren't in atrial fibrillation, I'd feel better. Well, maybe and maybe not. Is it the atrial fib, diastolic heart failure, obstructive sleep apnea, a combination of the above? Just he's older than he used to be. What should we do about his atrial fibrillation? Well, uh, the, the first thing is try to figure out why he has in the first place. If there's some easily reversible thing, mitral stenosis, he drinks too much caffeine, um, 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 alcohol and so forth. Those should be screened out. The second thing is uh, assess the stroke risk in this individual and uh, also their bleeding risk. We're required nowadays to have each of those statements in each of our outpatient uh, uh, characterizations nowadays. And it, these are not static numbers. Chad's VASC increases and it's a ratchet effect. Once you have had a stroke, you don't unhave a stroke. And you get two points for that. And once you pass 65 and 75, you, you don't uh, walk that one back either. So we assess their stroke uh, risk and uh, uh, figure out the best means of prevention for them. And then uh, think about a cardioversion as uh, a, both a therapeutic and a diagnostic tool, as has been mentioned before. Do a cardioversion, see if they feel better. And uh, some patients will have the cardioversion, and as uh, Dr. Epstein said, they will uh, relapse somewhere along the way. You'll see them six weeks, two months later, and they're back in atrial fibrillation. How did you feel? I don't know, I don't feel any different. You don't learn much from that unless you have some correlative measure of when they might have relapsed into atrial fibrillation. So the monitor along the way makes some sense with that. 
And some of us will say, well, uh, let's get the most bang for the buck for that cardioversion. Instead of doing a cardioversion off medications, um, do a cardioversion only to find that they've relapsed and we didn't learn anything from that, so then we'll repeat it after loading with an antiarrhythmic agent. Why don't we just do that up front? And a good agent to use uh, uh, might be uh, something that's going to have a reasonably good efficacy and reasonably good safety profile, maybe not in that order, safety first, such as dronetarone. For instance, you can initiate as an outpatient. It's easy to remember the dose. It's uh, not perhaps as effective as amiodarone, but it's, uh, it's reasonably effective and uh, easy to take, and you stop it if it doesn't work, uh, no, no harm, no foul. And um, if you uh, try antiarrhythmic drugs, uh, which one, uh, how long do you give it to work, how long do you, for how long do you load? Will control of obstructive sleep apnea be the ticket? Or is it just an ingredient that, that you shouldn't uh, miss uh, the opportunity to treat? And um, is there, are there other things we ought to deal with? Thoughts from the audience or, or panel members? Uh, who would like to just take a, a quick hand poll here? Ben, do you want to do a, a just a hand poll? Okay. Uh, who would try a cardioversion on this person to see if they'll feel better? I sure would. Yeah. Uh, now I've I've had people referred to me, all of us have for catheter ablation, but they don't want to try that cardioversion stuff. That sounds pretty dangerous. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever. We had a little education to go with that. How many would start this person on an antiarrhythmic drug from the get-go to try to get the most bang for the buck and uh, see if they'll have a better chance of maintaining science rhythm? So, John, if I may, yep. um, one of the things uh, you, you mentioned on the echo, that there were poor echo windows. Yes. Uh, one thing I would really look for is what the left atrial size is. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, if the left atrial size is on the bigger size, um, and we can get into those details. Yep. Uh, you know, the potential that this has been going on for a long period of time is there. I mean, the atrium is fairly remodeled. And if the atrium is fairly remodeled, a cardioversion is not going to get them back into normal sinus rhythm for more than a few hours or a day or two, potentially. Um, so in that circumstance, I would be more inclined to actually talking to them about an antiarrhythmic strategy, bringing them mm -hmm. in, um, and then, or, or starting as an outpatient, either of the two, uh, and then cardioverting the patient uh, with that on board. Uh, but at the same time, work on all the other aspects, sure. as you have said, with you know the sleep apnea, the weight, weight and loss. the high blood pressure, and all the other things. Yeah. John, I'm going to ask you a question about this patient because I actually, I see patients like this, and I find this to be somewhat difficult. And the, what I'm going to pose for you is the scenario, like many of us, we've cardioverted the patient. And I'm going to be more optimistic than Jag, and I'm going to let this guy have a month in sinus rhythm. And he goes a month in sinus rhythm, and he feels no different. Uh, you're watching him, and six or eight weeks later, he comes back to you because now he's back in persistent AFib. And now you're left with the dilemma that you have a 58-year-old male with persistent AFib with a CHADS VASCO 1. And so the two issues that come up is, anticoagulation or not, because we see this a lot in our community in the US. I think our European colleagues are much more aggressive about anticoagulation. Our guidelines still a little bit on the fence, aspirin or anticoagulation, and I know there's this uncertainty about what to do. And also this whole issue of the decisions you make today, of course, 
are going to impact this patient for years down the road. Yes. So uh, I'm sure you battle similar issues. What, what's your approach to those two issues in a patient like this? Yeah, there's a lot in there. And it, it, these are just real life questions that we have to address in our 20 minute outpatient visits, right? Uh, the first question about uh, he has been in sinus rhythm for four weeks, doesn't feel any different than you see him at six or eight weeks and he's back in atrial fib and he still doesn't feel any differently. That person is probably not going to benefit from sinus rhythm, probably not, although uh, we know that the, the reverse remodeling and uh, the restoration of mechanical function of the atrium can take up to eight weeks. The longer it's been in atrial fibrillation, the longer it seems to take. Although you, you have some people that you cardiovert and they wake up and they think, wow, this is just fantastic. That they're, they're going from the get-go. So this individual has is, is got a, a one and a half strikes against him, probably, in that scenario. But it's not a definitive answer as to whether he's going to ben benefit from sinus. And I would, I would say, let's go, let's give you the, if, if we're at a, a fork in the road here, pursue sinus rhythm or abandon that hope at 58 years of age. This is, as far as I'm concerned, this is a young man still. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to consign him to a life of atrial fibrillation. And then some 10 years from now, he develops mitral regurg, uh, needs to have his atrial kick, and uh, the horse has left the barn. We, we had our shot back in 19, we didn't take it. And, and now he's, he's left with uh, this stuff. So Andy, did you have a yeah. comment? Yeah, I, I was going to say uh, two things. One about anticoagulation, and he's got a CHAD score of one, but we know from the NOAC trials that people who were in those had a benefit for survival and decreased hem uh, um, uh, thromboembolic uh, stroke uh, being, being anticoagulated. So I think a CHAD score of one, in my mind, I anticoagulate these people and recommend that. I don't know what the others feel, but... I, see, I, I, sure, I sure promote that as well. And that's number one. Number two is a lot of people talk about has bled. Number, in, and in response to that, as the CHADS VASC score goes up, has, same, uh, same factors. has bled score goes up. Furthermore, as both go up, there's greater benefit from anticoagulation. And I like to think of the has bled score not as something that I use to not anticoagulate, but rather it, it raises my antennae to say I need to be more careful with sure. that patient, pick drugs that don't have interactions, and it's, it's a warning. It's to, it doesn't say don't anticoagulate. So as I said before, I tilt towards anticoagulation whenever I can. Now that being said, when you were talking right before you went back to the podium, you talked about people who feel uh, better when they're in sinus. The converse is there are people who get AF and feel no different. And there's old work from the, uh, one of the device companies made a, a, a pacemaker called the AT500 that you may remember. And uh, this was put in for people with atrial fibrillation and it could pace people out of atrial flutters and some AFs. Everybody who got this put in, because it was a transvenous lead, had highly symptomatic AF. And what was shown in this was that people had their first recurrence of AF after three months that could go over 48 hours and be asymptomatic. So I don't ever stop anticoagulation just because somebody says they're feeling better. Jeff. So one of the things I always do in these patients, oftentimes patients when they're symptomatic, they've 
or asymptomatic, they've adjusted their life around their symptoms right. and they feel that they're asymptomatic. So I have a very low threshold to actually put them on a treadmill, do some you know, objective functional evaluation. Uh, one, of what their heart rate response is. So the gentleman you said, the heart rate could be between 50 and 90 and the patient's asymptomatic. But if you put them on the treadmill and the heart rate now is a 180, means you need to do something about that heart rate or something for that patient also. So uh, I think having some objective evaluation of functional uh, level is really important. And I think it's really important also to you know, recognize that this gentleman is a 58-year-old, uh, has another 30, 40 years ahead uh, of him uh, with risk factors that are reversible. Uh, and there is a good chance that his atrial fibrillation potentially could be curable or significantly limited. Um, so I would be rather aggressive uh, unless, of course, the atrial size of the echo was 6.2 centimeters, then I'd take a step back and say, okay, put our hands up and just rate control him with good anticoagulation on a long-term basis. But if not, uh, I would uh, have a very low threshold, uh, if, you know, to put him on antiarrhythmic, cardioward him, uh, see how he does, and if he's back in AFib, put him on a treadmill to really see what his functional status is truly, and put those things together uh, with lifestyle modification, as you said, uh, before really signing off on the fact that AFib is yours for life. Yeah, this is very different management strategy than it was 15 or 20 years ago. It's very nuanced, very in individualized, and I think our patients benefit from that. M my mantra is, when in doubt, thin it out. <laughs> I like if, it. If you got when in doubt, any, thin it out. I, I look for a reason to His BMI was 35, so yeah, he yeah. needs to thin it out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> many, well, do it. many ways. Yeah, I, I'll give you a quick anecdote. I had a a hematology colleague at, at, in Indiana who, after the New England Journal papers came out about aspirin, no benefit in cardiovascular prophylaxis, he was on aspirin, he was uh, 70 years old, no other risk factors. And he wanted to, my permission to come off aspirin, he emailed me one Friday morning. And I said, well, I was just thinking of going the opposite direction and because of some recent papers putting you on uh, a NOAC. And he said, well, I'll think about it. That night, he had a stroke, and he was, he was reperfused, everything's fine. Sunday night, he emailed me saying, I'm out of the hospital on a NOAC. <laughs> and so, you know, this, this I, that just reinforces your resolve to, these, these medications are so safe and so effective nowadays, it's just, you really have to look for, uh, look hard for a reason to not do it, I think. Could we just also say, there is no place for aspirin or antiplatelet drugs as uh, stroke prophylaxis in atrial fib. That is clear now from the literature. And in fact, the whole aspirin story was based on a study in uh, what the 70s, SPAF-3. There were uh, where patients were randomized to aspirin, warfarin, and, uh, and placebo. There were six strokes in the warfarin group and one in the uh, aspirin group. But this one study from six strokes drove the entire meta-analysis, which has led to the guidelines. And it is truly a type 2 error that 1 in 20 times you're going to get a uh, mistaken uh, result. And so aspirin's got no place in this. You anticoagulate with a real anticoagulant. So I want to be sensitive. Oh, uh, question. Mm -hmm. uh, this patient, as you mentioned, had sleep apnea, right? It is. Question was, uh, what drug, first drug you would uh, pick up for this patient if you want to control his rhythm? 
That's an excellent question. I don't know that we have good evidence to pick one drug over another. You might want to have something that doesn't have so much rate slowing associated with it. Amiodarone would probably not be your best agent. Sotalol would probably not be your best agent because they have decelerations at night as well, and everybody gets pretty upset if they have significant pauses. But I don't know that there's a, any good evidence to pick one agent over another. You mentioned that his LFTs were a little bit up, and I think that uh, certainly plays into the uh, uh, choice of drugs that affect the liver. But I think it also tells us you have to get a good echo and see what the PA pressures uh, might be, because if they got pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular failure, you've got a bigger problem, and you need to uh, treat that fluid retention also. This activity was provided in partnership with Medtelligence. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.